Welcome to Tuned to Yesterday, featuring programs from Radio's Yesteryear. I'm your host, Mark Livonier, bringing you an hour of true history. Later on, a treasury salute to Jane Addams, and that was the year, profiling 1909. But first, an episode of Freedom USA. And while not a completely historically accurate tale, this series brought listeners behind the curtain on goings-on in Washington and how senators worked. Tyrone Power, our star in the syndicated broadcast from March 30th, 1952. Ladies and gentlemen, you are about to hear the story of a United States senator. You are going behind the scenes of political Washington, into the Senate chambers, the cloakrooms, the private offices, the meetings, secret and public. The locale, the background, are factual. Only the names and the stories are fictional. This is Freedom, USA. Starring Tyrone Power as the Senator of the United States and featuring the voice of America's distinguished news commentator and Washington authority, Edwin C. Hill. Freedom, USA, the story of your government today. In a moment, listen to Tyrone Power as Senator Dean Edwards in Freedom, USA. Now, we present Freedom, USA, starring Tyrone Power as Senator Dean Edwards and featuring the voice of Edwin C. Hill. This is Edwin C. Hill, ladies and gentlemen, in Washington. Capitol Hill is buzzing today with another Central American revolution hitting the front stages. Santa Granada this time. A handful of rebels overthrowing the duly elected government in a lightning-fast and bloodless coup d'etat. Attention is focused on the United States Senate, where a trade embargo is being considered to reprimand the insurgents. The question goes in the committee, but the general consensus is that it will be brought to the floor within a matter of hours. Comprising the committee, which will consider the invocation embargo, as Senator Frederick Edwards... Senator Edwards. Hmm? Oh, good morning, Senator Hardy. One of a few words with you, Dean. I'm on my way to a committee meeting. Yes, I know. That's what I wanted to speak to you about. Well, what's on your mind? About this embargo of Santa Granada. Uh-huh. Going to vote for it? Yes, I think so. Don't you think we're rushing into this rather quickly? Oh, I don't think so, John. If a group of bandits took over, well, say, your state capital, would you want us to deliberate before we did something about That's it? That's a little different, Dean. Different? How? Santa Granada is a republic. It has a democratic constitution and laws. If there's something wrong with an administration, the voters have redress at the polls. Yes, yes, I agree. Rebellion was hasty and ill-advised, but tempers are quicker down there. Emotions are more easily stirred. What are you driving at, John? Dean, I know something about Santa Granada. I did 18 months there as a liaison officer during the war. I came to know the people pretty well. I'm afraid I don't understand your position. I know the leader of the rebellion, too, Sentado. He wouldn't throw his country into chaos for a frivolous reason. All I'm asking, Dean, is time. Time to investigate the whole thing. We shouldn't jump to conclusions. We haven't jumped to anything. The conclusion was presented to us. An embargo is a terrible weapon against a nation like Santa Granada. The whole country would suffer. Let's talk about this some more, John. Right now. Right I'm... now, I know you're going into that meeting to support a motion to bring the subject up on the Senate floor. Yes. Once it gets to the floor, it'll be passed in a few hours. If there was only time, time to get some perspective, some clarity. Sorry, John. I think it's clear now. Then we are agreed unanimously, gentlemen, that the subject of an embargo on Central Granada be put on the Senate agenda without delay. Yes. Mr. Chairman, Mr. Chairman, I had a talk with Senator John Hardy. Seems he cautions less haste and more deliberation. For a freshman senator, that's refreshing. He spent considerable time in Santa Granada, knows the new president, Sentado. Didn't he bring up our trade agreement with Santa Granada? No, but it is a point. How can we renege on it? Well, our agreement is with the lawful government. And that's what we're counting on, Dean. 
When the people feel the weight of the embargo, they'll turn the bandits out and return the legal government to power. I suppose. I'm not surprised that Senator Hart is concerned. The embargo hurts him, too. Santa Granada is the principal consumer of goods produced in Hardy's home state. Oh. If I were in his position, I might be just as concerned. But fortunately, this committee has a broader perspective. Not that I question Senator Hardy's motives, but perhaps other considerations have swayed him. Uh, subconsciously? <laughs> I'm not going to argue the point, Mr. Chairman. The resolution is unanimous. He's all in the papers, Senator Edwards. I know. I just thought that you, Senor Morena, as ambassador of Santa Granada, might have some information not available to the papers. The brutality, the corruption, where they come from, who knows the answer? They come out of the hills rattling swords and firing guns, and the peace, the quiet of my country is shattered with smoke and bullets and death. Perhaps we are not strong enough to take care of ourselves. I understood it was a bloodless revolution. What do you know about Sentado, your new president? He is not my new president. My new president must be elected by the people, not elected by himself. He is a tyrant. Well, he says the deposed president was a tyrant. So? Uh, he's always one way or another. There's a saying, a shrug of the shoulders, a cynical smile on the lips, again a revolution in the vaudeville republic. <laughs> a joke, yes. A joke except for the actors. The United States is going to enforce an embargo to show its disapproval. I believe it would help. You understand why we're doing it? Of course, Senator. Senator John Hardy is opposed. I know Senator Hardy. He's a friend of my country. But my people are new in the ways of democracy. Even America had to fight to balance herself to reach her own equilibrium. Well, perhaps now America can help us with her wisdom and strength. Perhaps. Thank you, Mr. Ambassador. The people of my country must be guided. It is uh, hard for me to say it, Senator, but the embargo, I think it will have a good effect.
I understand Sentado's setting up general elections there. Keen? They voted Russia, too. And Germany under Hitler held what they laughingly called elections. I must say the ambassador's reaction to the embargo coincides with the press and the Congress. He's all for it. Dean, hmm? you've got too much sense to butt into this. Of course I have. Just because you feel sorry for Hardy tilting against windmills. <laughs> you and your quotations. Of course, it's no reason I should involve myself. How long do you think he can last? No, he'll give up soon enough. It's a terrible grind when you haven't anybody to spell you. No rest, nobody listening to you. Your feet begin to hurt, your voice goes hoarse. Honey, about Morena, the ambassador. Huh? He wants the embargo, even though his people will be hurt. And yet John Hardy is concerned about how the people are going to suffer. Dean, all John wants is a delay to get at the truth of the matter. Where are you going, Dean? Into the Senate. See how Hardy's doing. Never expected such stubbornness on the part of my colleagues. And yet you call me stubborn. You think my motives are selfish. But I'm only concerned with trying to make you understand that we may be rushing into a grave injustice. Ah, welcome, Senator Edwards. That makes three of us. You, the chairman, and me. Will the senator yield? No, sir, I will not. I beg your pardon. Will the senator yield for a question? One question, all right. How long does the senator think he can continue like this? Perhaps the senator would like to remain here and see. Now, I'll put the question this way. Does the senator think he can continue for another 36 hours? 36 hours? Because I... in 36 hours, I can fly to Santa Granada and return, perhaps with a first-hand report of the situation. I... I'll try. I thank the senator. I... I'll keep going until they carry me out. Tyrone Power, starring as Senator Dean Edwards in Freedom, USA, and the second act of our story. This is Edmund C. Hill, ladies and gentlemen, and the word on the hill comes in a cracked voice and halting pronunciation as a one-man filibuster drones on through the night and into the morning hours. For Senator John Hardy is applying the age-old principle that a man can fight for the things in which he believes. Alone and unaided, the senator continues, and the brutal indifference of an empty Senate chamber is sparked by only one small chink of light for him, a relief in the form of another freshman senator, Dean Edwards, now winging his way to Santa Granada, seeking the inside story of the revolution there. Oh, thanks. I just got this overnight bag. I'll carry it. That's the big hotel, huh? I prefer a more modest one. Oh, not so big. That's right. But, Senor Edwards. Well, company. For your own protection, Senor. It was wise of you not to make publicity about your arriving here, but there are radios, you know. I see. Drive along Grand Boulevard, Jose. Hop beyond the hill road and keep going. Senor. Now, who are you protecting me from? Well, from the rebels, of course. They would kill you on sight. My name is Suedad Garcia, Minister of Interior. Formerly, that is. I see. If you don't think you are in danger, look what the Sentada regime is capable of. Look out there, the newspaper office, the printing press, smashed, destroyed. Sentado? Who else, senor? They would print the truth. That is the end for them. The library, see? Burned. Hmm. 
your American newspapers. Haven't they printed the stories in America? Yes. yes. The whole world will rebel. We are in the right. We will triumph. Uh, where are you taking me? But you will want to speak to President Ibaraga, huh? the rightful president of Santa Granada? Uh, of course. Into the garage, Jose, out of sight. Senor. It's quite a layout. And it looks vulnerable, Garcia. On such short notice, Senor Edwards, it is the best we could do. But it is 3,000 feet above the city, and we have lookouts. Will you come with me? President is a broken man, Senor. For six years he has worked as no man should work, far into the night, always contemplating how best to help our country. Uh, and for this to happen... Uh, this way, please. Presidente? No. Oh, si, Garcia, my loyal friend. May I present Senor Edwards, Senator Edwards of the United States? Oh, it's my great pleasure, Senator. Please, be seated. Eh? Uh, thank you, Garcia. Gracias, Presidente. May I express my sympathy? Uh, thank you, Senator Edwards. But in the end, justice will prevail. The usurper will be defeated, the schools will be rebuilt. The library tower again raised its proud head to the sky. The newspaper press again print the truth. Hmm. Tell me about Sentado, Mr. President. What kind of man is he? Why did he lead a revolt? Who financed his revolution? Sentado, Senator, was defeated in the last election. I defeated him. Why did he revolt? It was my intention to hold elections next month, Senator. Sentado knew that he would again be defeated. And so he rebelled. Now there is one way to stop him. The embargo, Senator, is a strong weapon. Then you approve of it? Yes. Yes, Senator Edwards, I approve of it. It will mean a great deal of hardship for your people. But Sentado's regime means much greater hardship, Senator. I see. Well, Mr. President, it's been most enlightening. Ah, but you must stay for dinner. Well, thank you, but time presses. And... Oh, Senator, I insist. No, you don't understand. Under different circumstances, I would be delighted to accept your invitation. But right now, someone is waiting for me. Oh. On the floor of the Senate chamber in Washington. Ah, uh, Senator Hardy, huh? That's right. You know him? See, si. see, si, I know him, Senator. A very young man. I know that he is making speeches against me, too. Well, I... I wouldn't exactly say the speeches were against you, Mr. President. But... Uh, Senator, what are your plans right now? Well, I want to talk with Sentado. I'm afraid that I must tell you it, uh, it would be dangerous. Oh, nonsense. Nothing will happen to me. Everything's a matter of time now. I've got 14 hours to get back to Washington. The flight takes... Yes, yes, I understand, Senator. Uh, Garcia. Fine. If you'll just arrange to have me driven into the city. Presidente? Uh, Garcia, the Senator will remain for dinner. Si, Presidente. Now, I'm sorry. I must insist on leaving immediately. You are not going anywhere, Senator. Oh? <laughs> you see, Senator, you must accept our hospitality. Hardly according to protocol to back up invitations with firearms. Of course, I, I regret this exceedingly. Oh, thank Senate. you. And now what, Boraga? You are a clever man, Senator. What would you think? I don't have to be very clever. You don't want me to return to the United States. Ah. Well, why did you go through all the rigmarole trying to convince me? I thought perhaps I could convince you, Senator. And that you would return immediately without speaking to Sentado, without investigating further. Oh, I see. Now, where will it be, Boraga? In the president's garden? In the street in front of the embassy? The blame for my assassination has to be put on Sentado's doorstep, huh? Yes, yes. It would be best in the city at night. Please, Senator, do not make it necessary for it to happen here, now. This is Edmund C. Hill, bringing you an account of Senator John Hardy's filibuster on the Senate floor, and a rapidly weakening young senator it is, too, waiting, waiting for Senator Edwards, and information has just arrived that the plane on which Senator Edwards was to return is en route from Santa Granada now, without the senator aboard. 
Possibly you'll catch a later plane. But the delay is going to hurt. Delay, and with each moment precious. And even now, Hardy's voice is almost a whisper. And yet he keeps on doubly determined. Uh, well, it's a shame that you would not join me, Senator Edwards. The dinner was most excellent. I lost my appetite a few hours ago. <laughs> you know, Senator, at another time, under different circumstances, it would be a pleasure knowing you. Now? Now it's getting dark outside and you have your job to do, hmm? Ah, the fortunes of war, no? Presidente. Well, come in, my faithful Garcia, come in. We have an emissary from Sentado. Uh -huh. Rosa Herardi. The newspaper publishes, Don? See, si, Presidente, she has a message. <laughs> send her in, send her in. Senator Edwards? Oh, no, 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 it will not matter. <laughs> no, no, it will not matter. You can go in, Rosa. Well, come in, Rosa, come in. Hey, you too, Garcia. Yes. Ah, do not be alarmed. This is Senator Edwards from the United States. How do you do, Miss? Rosa Herardi. Senator Edwards? An American. Come, come, come. You have a message for me, Rosa, from Sentado, eh? You have one, Senor Braga. <laughs> Sentado? He is going to give you back the control of the government. Ah. So he realizes in the end he could not hope to get away with it. Oh, no, Senor Braga. It is that he will not let the people suffer. He will not let the United States make such embargo. Uh, did I not tell you, Senator? Justice will triumph in the end, eh? You speak of justice. To whom? Rosa. Stand back. There will be justice. You did not expect a woman to have a gun, eh? Stand back, all of you. Put that gun away, Rosa. President Sondara lost thee. But you will not win, Senor Boraga. You will not win, because I am going to kill you. Rosa. You, the senator from the United States, you listened to him, eh? You believed all the lies he told you. Go on, Rosa. My father's printing press. He told you President Santaro destroyed the... You right? call him President? He is President to me. You threatened to destroy my father for many months now because he printed what you did not want to see. So when the time came, you sent your men to smash and destroy just as you burned the library and the schools so you could put the blame on President Santaro. Why did Santaro overthrow the government? Because of the elections that never come. President Baraga keeps putting it off, promising always, but never making the day or the time. He knows what will happen. He knows he will not be elected again. Oh, stand still, Arshu. No, no, be careful. Rosa. Huh? Aren't you making a mistake, Rosa? Shooting Baraga will only make him a martyr to whatever followers he has. Oh, perhaps, Besides, but... now there is no need to kill him. He won't come back into power if I can get back to Washington. If... Oh, I had forgotten the matter of your safety. But, of course, you are right, Senator. Boraga. Yes, Senator. Will you lead the way? Rosa and I need safe passage back to the city. I'm still going to have my talk with Presidente Sentado. Edwin C. Hill, ladies and gentlemen, in the press gallery of the United States Senate to witness what must be the closing moments of Senator John Hardy's filibuster. Over 40 hours now, and there's just so much punishment the body can stand. The vocal cords can take. And still, Senator Dean Edwards hasn't returned from Santa Granada, and now, almost sensing the end of the long struggle, the Senate chamber's filling up. Let's try to pick up Senator Hardy's voice. It seems we come to the end of the rope. I want to make one last... Will the Senator yield? One last effort. I see my colleagues are in the chamber. Will the Senator yield? Yes. I will yield. <laughs> And there it is, ladies and gentlemen. Senator John Hardy yielded the floor. And wait a minute. There's some excitement in the rear of the Senate chamber. I can't quite... Yes, it's Senator Dean Edwards. He's making his way to his desk in the well. Mr. Chairman, 
Mr. Chairman, may I have the floor? Chair recognizes Senator Edwards. Thank you. Gentlemen of the Senate, as most of you know, I just returned from the Republic of Santa Granada. There I found first-hand evidence that has direct bearing on the trade embargo resolution and on Senator Hardy's opposition to it. When you have heard my story, I'm sure all of you will agree that the placement of the embargo against Santa Granada deserves our first... Turn in just a moment. This is Tyrone Power, ladies and gentlemen. I like America because encompassed within its freedoms and liberties is the opportunity for a solution to the problems that beset the world today. In our relations with other nations, in the exercising of our democratic privileges, we are an example of our own way of life, its fullness and its richness, its bold and vigorous outlook. Emerson said, this country was founded by the bold and cannot be maintained by the timid. Let us remain bold. Let us hold tight to our God-given freedom. Let us keep on being the hope toward which the whole world aspires. invite you to again visit our national capital for another absorbing episode of Freedom USA, starring Tyrone Power. In the interest of good government, we urge you to listen to these important stories from Washington, D.C. Freedom USA. Freedom USA, on tuned to yesterday from the 30th of March, 1952, in a syndicated broadcast. And while the series featured stories with a lot of fiction intertwined within them, it did have a lot of credibility, mostly for its narrator, Edwin C. Hill. He was at near-celebrity status as a newspaper reporter and syndicated columnist based out of the New York Sun, and in 1934 produced a powerful documentary called Hitler's Reign of Terror. You're listening to an hour of true history on Tuned to Yesterday. I'm your host, Mark Livonier. Next, the Treasury Department radio show Treasury Salute brings us a profile of a social worker in Chicago and an episode called Jane Addams. This was released for syndication on June 12, 1944. The Treasury Salute, a program of the United States Treasury featuring Brenda Lewis. Brett Morrison and the Treasury Orchestra under the direction of David Brookman. Buy bonds and more bonds. Let's all back the attack. Buy more than before. is Brett Morrison. There is in Chicago a settlement house known far and wide, and through the open doors of this social center have trooped many thousands of the poor and depressed who lived in the congested districts around about. Men whose life is at the graying time remember that they first went through those doors as toddlers while their mothers worked all day in the factories. She is gone now, the woman who founded Hull House, but her spirit lives not there alone, but in every such place throughout America. Today, we salute the great social worker, Jane Adams, of Hull House. 
Not far from where Mrs. O'Leary's cow is said to have kicked over the lamp that started the Chicago fire, two girls, fresh from college, just returned from a trip to Europe, found an old house which had outlived the Holocaust known as the Hull House. These two were Jane Adams and Ellen Starr, and the year was 1889. They rented the house and fitted it up as a community center, and they opened their doors wide. They had no experience as social workers, but few people had, so they just began. Their house was in the deep center of a crowded area of Italian immigrants, Jewish communities, Irish sections, with an added assortment of Bohemians, Germans, Swedish, and Russians, all with one thing in common. They were unutterably poor, miserably housed, and civically neglected. It was not easy to gain the confidence of these people. Jane and Ellen were swells to them just out for a little slumming. But the children came, more and more of them, even though some of the parents forbade it. It was a struggle, but one night an Italian mother sent for her. Jane went through the dark, dangerous streets alone to a tenement where a little boy lay dying. He had wanted to say goodbye before he went to the Americana lady. The word spread, and shortly the house was filled with the parents. Mothers began to leave their children at Hull House while they worked, and the boys came in off the streets to play games. Jane Adams and Ellen Starr had won the hearts of the forgotten people because a little boy remembered to say goodbye to the Americana lady. We now hear Brenda Lewis singing, Smiling Through. As the years went on, Jane Addams became ever more vital to Chicago, and never did she turn her back upon the people who surrounded her. It was inevitable that Hull House should not only increase its activities with evening classes, language classes, handicrafts, sports, dramatics, but being so closely tied with the economic conditions of the people that it should become involved in their struggles for better conditions. Jane Addams entered into labor disputes. She waged a mighty fight to put an end to child labor. She became a mighty figure in Chicago, but somehow, no matter how hard she worked, there was a smile ready when one of her children would ask some vital question, such as the peaked little Greek lad who came timidly into Hull House with visions of a week in the country and asked, Is this where you put your name down for fresh air? Yes, she laughed. Lots and lots of fresh air.
harvest of the years was rich indeed for Jane Addams. She began in an honest attempt to better a small, neglected district of Chicago. She finished with a pattern for social welfare that made possible the same project being developed in hundreds of other cities. She lived to see slum boys paint beautiful pictures, factory girls compose music, lost and hopeless men become civic leaders, work-worn women spend leisure hours in laughter and song. Hers was not a magic touch. For every gain, she labored. For every friend, she spent energy. And the growth of the little upstairs room to the Hull House of today, large and wonderful, was a matter of years of patience. Jane Addams has received the Nobel Prize of Peace, a great honor for a very great woman. Yet her real victory is being expressed today in a war for human liberty and progress, in which the nationalities which once surrounded her in Hull House have become Americans, fighting in a great worldwide army and navy, fighting her fight for an end to misery and poverty. waged a lifelong war for liberty and progress, and that war is still being fought now, today, but not in just one city, all over the entire world. And our part in the victory is to buy war bonds and buy more bonds to make the fifth war loan drive the smashing success it has got to be. The battles are still ahead. We are facing the zero hour, and your country needs your money. If it means a sacrifice, remember that our boys offer their lives. We lend our money. So back the attack by double the war bonds you bought before. The United States Treasury thanks Brenda Lewis and Brett Morrison, who appeared on this especially transcribed program. The Treasury salute was written by Forrest Barnes and directed by Paul Lewis. The music was conducted by David Brookman. This is Ed Hurley speaking. Treasury Salute, on tuned to yesterday, a syndicated broadcast from June 12, 1944. We now wrap this hour of true history, on tuned to yesterday, with a broadcast of That Was the Year, syndicated in 1935, profiling the year 1909. That was the year, recreating notable events of passing time, reviving memories of men and women who have contributed to the history of a modern world. Nineteen nine, that was the year. January 23, night in a blinding pea soup fog enveloped the steamship Republic off Nantucket Island, Massachusetts. A skipper, Captain Sealby, peers hopelessly from his bridge through the gray blanket. 
while a few feet aft, radio operator Jack Bin sends his routine signals. Suddenly... The Republic has rammed amidships by the steamship Florida. A steel hull ripped wide into a deep gash, admitting seawater into the engine room. Three of the Republic's passengers and three of the Florida seamen are killed by the impact. The bow of the Florida is crumpled back for 30 feet like so much tin. The Republic's spark, Jack Binns, remains at his post in the radio cabin, repairs his damaged equipment, utilizing a storage battery for power, continues to send distress calls until soon ships within a radius of 200 miles were speeding to the disaster. As the Republic slowly settled into the wintry waters of the Atlantic, all survivors were removed to the Florida, all save Captain Sealby, who, true to the tradition of the sea, remained with his ship to be picked up by searchlights a half hour after she sank, and rescued. The next day, citizens of the U.S. welcomed a new hero, radio operator of the Republic, Jack Binns. 1909, that was the year. January 9 witnessed the culmination of a sequence of events which had begun almost three years before. Shortly after midnight, October 20, 1906, near Railfoot Lake in the northwest corner of the state of Tennessee, Eight hooded men surrounding two prisoners come to a halt in a deep wooded ravine. All right, boys, we'll stop here. What? What are you going to, to do with us, boys? We don't know yet. Captain Quentin Rankin, you and Mr. B.Z. Taylor here own Real Foot Lake, don't you? Yes. Well, you know that we have always made our living, and a good one, too, from fishing in that there lake. Yes, but... Shut uh... up. Now you and your partner here have set up your own rules and regulations, preventing Williams from fishing in that lake. Slip that noose over his head. You're not going to lynch me, are you, boys? That, Captain Rankin, all depends on you. Are you going to allow us to fish in that lake without meddling, or are you ain't? No. No. We own that lake, and it's ours to do with what we like. All right, Captain. That was your last chance. String him up. Lynched, his body riddled with bullets, Captain Rankin became the corpus delecti and murder charges against the eight fishermen of Realfoot Lake. His partner, Taylor, had escaped, swimming down a creek under a hail of rifle fire. On January 9, 1909, Mountain Justice met defeat at the hands of the penal code of the state of Tennessee. When six of the assailants were sentenced to be hanged, two to life imprisonment. That was the year. Monday, February 22, Hampton Roads, Virginia. Admiral Sperry... Officers and men of the battleship fleet, over a year has passed since you steamed out of this harbor and over the world's rim. And this morning, the hearts of all who saw thrilled with pride as the hulls of the mighty warships lifted above the horizon. This is the first battleship fleet that has ever circumnavigated the globe. Those who perform the feat again can but follow in your footsteps. We are proud of all the ships and all the men in this whole fleet, and we welcome you home to the country whose good repute among nations has been by what you have done. Thus did President Theodore Roosevelt welcome the 12,000 officers and men of the U.S. fleet of 16 battleships on their return to home waters, after a cruise of more than two years. 1909. That was the year. Dover, England, July 25. Oh, I don't see him yet, do you? No. No, I don't. I say, uh, what's all the to-do about? Some blighter jump off the cliff? Oh, no, no. Quite the opposite, as a matter of fact. Some blighter's about to jump on the cliff. Oh, haven't you heard, old man? Louis Blériot, the French flyer, is crossing the channel in his aeroplane. Oh, 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 oh I say. Come now, you're pulling my leg. <laughs> no, no, not at all. There he is. Louis Blériot, his white wing plane, circled over twice, battled a fog bank for ten minutes, then landed gently on Shakespeare Cliff. For the first time, a traveler landed upon English soil without arriving by water. After the feat, Louis Blériot remarked, I am more than happy that I crossed the channel. At first, I promised my wife that I would not make the attempt. Then I determined that if one man failed, I would be the first to come. And voila, I am here. Two days later, July 27, at Fort Myer, Virginia, 39-year-old Orville Wright, 
with Frank P. Palmer as a passenger, took off on an attempt to keep his plane aloft for one hour and win $25,000. Breaking Brother Wilbur's record, Orville Wright remained in the air one hour, 12 minutes, 40 seconds. Greeting him upon landing was jovial President William H. Taft. Mr. Wright, I congratulate you on your brilliant achievement. You deserve, sir, the thanks of the nation and the world. <clears throat> By the way, was your passenger well-behaved, or did he insist on talking to the motorman? <laughs> <laughs> no, Mr. President, I assure you no one could talk over the popping of that engine. <laughs> 1909, that was the year... Beyond the imaginary line around the Earth's boreal zone, designated upon charts as 66 degrees, 30 minutes north latitude, the line which men call the Arctic Circle, there marches an endless procession of more than 700 souls. Gazing through the frigid kaleidoscope of the Aurora Borealis, they beckon to other kindred souls in whose depths burns the valorous love of adventure. Each in his day, each in his own manner, sought to engrave his name upon the eternal tablets of history as the discoverer of the North Pole. Whether any ever succeeded, the world will never know. For each in his day, each in his own manner, met death until the ninth month of the year 1909. September 1, reached North Pole April 21st, 1908. Discovered land far north. Returned to Copenhagen by steamer. Frederick A. Cook. September 6. Herbert L. Bridgman, Secretary, Peary Arctic Club. Notified geographical societies, I have discovered the pole. Commander Robert E. Peary. September 7. Hurrah for Peary. It is now surely all American. Cook. September 13. Cook's story should not be taken too seriously. The two Eskimo who accompanied him say he went no distance north and not out of sight of land. Other members of the tribe corroborate their story. Peary. September 14. I am absolutely indifferent in regard to Peary's doubts concerning my discovery of the North Pole. I would not degrade myself so far as to answer anything Peary has said. Frederick A. Cook. November 3. Commander Perry, the National Geographic Society awards you this gold medal as a token of the Society's recognition of your discovery of the North Pole. December 8. A committee of experts from the faculty of the University of Copenhagen has decided to reject the reports of Dr. Frederick A. Cook in which he claims to have discovered the North Pole. Thus did Robert Edwin Peary, plowing through the ice-encrusted waters of the Arctic Ocean in his ship, the Roosevelt, receive the approbation of the world as the discoverer of the Earth's northern axis. Nineteen nine. That was the year that Seattle, Washington, entertained the nation at its Alaska-Yukon-Pacific Exposition. It was the year of the hobble skirt, the year the first Lincoln penny was issued by the U.S. Mint. It was the year you were singing...
That was the year on Tuned to Yesterday, a syndicated recording from 1935. And that brings the curtain down on this hour of true history on Tuned to Yesterday. Be sure to be with us next time for more great programs from Radio's Past. Until our next hour together, I'm Mark Lavonier. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>